Welcome to Rowan College of Burlington County's Baroness Podcast. I'm Dr. Brooke Myatt, Program Chair and Assistant Professor of our Entertainment Technologies Department. I am the co-chair of the Women's Advocacy Group, a subcommittee of the President's Advisory Council on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. This monthly series highlights women in leadership while encouraging listeners to build their skills, connect with the community, and visualize the opportunities available to women in various professions. Tune in for a female perspective on the Burlington County community. We are here to listen to these amazing women. And if you want to hear from women who lead and inspire, this podcast is for you. Welcome to our October podcast. And boy, if I have an inspiring woman to meet today, it is Miss Claudine Leone. Oh my goodness. Miss Leone is an attorney with over 25 years of experience in legislative and regulatory advocacy work in government affairs in Trenton, New Jersey. She began her career as a contract lobbyist with the Princeton Public Affairs Group, Trenton's largest lobbying firm, and recently has been inducted into Senator Weinberg's annual women's powerless names of the most influential female lobbyists, journalists, government officials, and an advocate who influences public policy across New Jersey. And on top of all that, you're a breast cancer survivor. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So that was a lot because I feel like every time I see you, you are always doing 20 million things. You wear so many hats. We've been in the community together. I mean, I've only been in the community for five years. You have been in the Morristown community for many, many years. How many years have you been um, here? 20 years. Yes. August. Yes. Yeah. And you know, when we've been working in the community together, you are a female that I look up to. And to now hear about your journey and know more about your journey, I'm just so excited that you're here today. You're you're a powerful woman. And I just want to just share that. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Book. Tell me about this powerhouse of a job. You're an advocate you're working in government affairs. You're this powerful lobbyist. Tell me about like your day to day. What are you doing? So when I graduated from law school, I really had an affinity for legislative and regulatory work. I, I really did think I was going to be in a boring desk job at the Securities and Exchange Commission. I mean, that really was what I excited me. Well, that sounds fun. Yeah, not really. No, <laughs> no. So I did I did touch base with that a little bit. I did a couple of internships. And then I met a lobbyist in Trenton, uh, didn't know anything about that world. And I invited him to do a speaking series and um, ended up getting you know familiar with what he did and picked his brain and thought, wow, this might really be my calling. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be hired by this gentleman, and that was the firm you mentioned, and was trained under that, um, you know, incredible uh, company for, for years. And then I went out on my own and created my own boutique lobbying firm. That was kind of coincided at the same time you start a family. So I really took control of my destiny and worked for myself at the time, you know, I got married and started having kids. I mean, that's a big step for a female, right? You're you're just getting into your professional life as a young woman. You're starting a family. What what made you do that leap? Because I think a lot of women in that 
age and that time frame of their life with their professions just starting out are very scared to do that. What made you take that powerful jump? Uh, it wasn't easy. You know, it was, it was, um, I, I had something in between where I did go work for a law firm for about a year. Um, and that made the transition to going out on my own a little bit of a, an easier choice because I saw what my options were. And I knew while we can have it all, having control of your own hours and destiny and your client load um, was important to me at that time. And I really could, be frank, make the same money or possibly more, likely more, doing it on my own. And that seems strange to everyone if they think they can work for sure. you know, a company. But, you know, I can choose whether I want six or 20 clients. And, and in times of my life, you know, six worked. In times of my life, 12 worked. And and I can balance that. And I can decide if I'm, you know, going to actively pursue more clients or take a chill. So what is your specialty with your clients? What is, what is your wheelhouse that you're doing? I discovered quickly that my wheelhouse was working with nonprofit associations. Um, it's really a personality and culture um, strength. Uh, I've had corporate clients. I do very well with corporate clients. But that... That volunteerism, the people that run nonprofits and associations, except for maybe their executive director, it's all volunteer base, and they're very passionate about what they do and what they're advocating for. I ended up getting, uh, by chance, not by interest, thrown into the healthcare world. So I did a lot of work with, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies. I did a lot of work with uh, physician actual special specialties and um, insurance-related things, and I ended up really focusing on the healthcare provider world. So I represent family medicine, uh, internal medicine, emergency medicine, and plastic surgeons. Those are my healthcare clients. I do have other clients, which are somewhat related to um, women and children in health. Is I represent the American Camp Association, which is our summer camps. Well, we're just coming off a of summer camp, oh, yeah. so oh, yeah. I mean, yes. you know, is now like a busy season for you, or is it kind of died down? Oh, now, it, now is now is a relaxing time. Now all the camp directors have spent their time. You know, they're exhausted. They all take vacations yeah. some point in September, yeah. and then they come back game busters in November. Yeah, they're ready like, for the next season. You're like, we need to stop canoeing for a minute yeah, and, yeah. and 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 pull it together, yeah. and then and take a break, and yeah. then. What have been some of your most challenging um, situations that you've been put in? And, and how did you overcome them in this kind of space? Because being a female, I think, would be maybe the number one challenge. But, it, you know, it, I would say that coming into Trenton in 1995 as a female lobbyist, we were very far and few between. We had a couple of our kind of older mentors at the time, that there were some major powerhouse women, probably like three or four of them, that ran campaigns for um, Governor Whitman at the time, and they started their own lobbying firms, and, you know, they were just the ladies, right? I mean, sure, I know that, you yeah. Know, and that was it. And then there was a bunch of us, little, you know, just starting out. We were in complete minority. I mean, I, yeah. I think back then, maybe there was like 10 of us out of an entire you know, entire, yeah, of course. you know, hundreds of, of lobbyists. I had great mentors in my first firm. They really encouraged and nurtured us. Um, you know, the partners were all men at the time, uh, but 
I don't. I I think that they knew that we women get, yeah. it, get it done. Yeah, and, sure. And I could see even in that firm, the the few women that were there, we were we were there the longest. <laughs> we stayed the latest, and we we just absorbed like sponges. So um, I think most people think of lobbying as um, you know, kind of the the boys' club, and in that era, definitely. And I mean, it, it was definitely hard to break in. I didn't golf, right? I didn't. Right. I'm not a drinker. Yeah. I'm not a bar. I'm gonna go hang out at the bar with the I, guys. I am not a golfer either. Yeah. My husband tries. I, I now. I, I just. Know. It's. I just can't pick it up. As, I don't know. As much as I know, it would have contributed and improved my career. I just couldn't get into it. Um, but I never. I personally never had a negative interaction with any male legislators or male colleagues in that world. I do know that it happens. And Senator Weinberg, who you mentioned, really has dug into that um, over the years and, you know, um, has been advocating for the women that work in Trenton and the administration. And now you use this word mentors, and I think, you know, that's, that's something that a lot of our students here at RCBC are looking for, what would you say and what kind of advice would you give a young woman that's starting off trying to become a lobbyist? You know, the landscape has changed, obviously. What kind of what kind of advice would you give a young woman right now trying to get into this field? So there's there's a lot of us now. So there's a lot of women and there's particularly a lot of younger women. Um, there's two parts to that, I guess, Brooke. I was trying to think. I, I do have a lot of younger lobbyists that I work with regularly, and we always talk about trying to put something together where we're going to have a networking dinner sure. or, or some official way to put us all in the same room because we don't all know each other. If we're not working, I'm, I do a lot of health care, so I sure. may not know the environmental right. you know, female staff. There's so many different subcommittees so and categories yeah. of this, yeah. So to put all of us in, you know, some sort of opportunity to say, hey, even if it's just a cocktail hour, just invite over. But I think from the ones that have reached out to me, that's what I would recommend. So I have two women who proactively just said, I, I want you to mentor me, you know, like, talk to me. How did you get here? Am I following sure. your path? Like, yeah. how did you end up opening your business? Like, yeah. how are you standing next to these guys? You know, they, they yeah, really, your story is powerful. How really do you know. share? Yeah. yeah. So I think it's be brave, be bold. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid, even if it's a not a, a, not a female uh, mentor. I mean, there's so many. I had male mentors, uh, and I had you know at least several female lift mentors as I started opening my business and kind of looking sure. at my different. And what were their life. takeaways? The male mentors, what were they providing you? They were providing more of the tactical, like how to do the job. Sure, right where the right. female mentors might really know what your balancing act might, have, you know, the challenges oh, of your life. Sure. So I think that I had the male mentorship in the right time frame of my life. I don't think I would be as successful as I am, but for the training I got from them. And then later on dealing with watching some of my more, my, my senior mentors sell their businesses, move on, retire, kind of like looking at like, is that going to be my path? Am I going to do this another 20 years and then sell my business off? Or am I just, you know, going to, what am I going to do? So I, I, they're, they're more practical. Um, they're always more 
um, understanding of the bigger picture, I think. So you're this powerhouse of a lobbyist. You're, you're in Trenton. You're doing your thing. Everything's good. Kids are in their young 10, 11. And in around 2018, the ball drops. Big ball. What happened in 2018? So, no, I wouldn't say just because I'm involved in healthcare, but I'm a very diligent person with my healthcare. So I don't miss an annual physical. I don't miss an annual GYN appointment. I had my normal GYN appointment, got my script to go get my mammography. Uh, normal, you know, just go go and get it done. Um, and got a call the next day that something was off and I had to go back. And my GYN, who I've known for years, had just gone through breast cancer herself. So she was pretty pretty frank with me at that time and says, I don't think this is going the right direction. So, you know, get there soon. So I did. And it was. Um, And I always uh, I always tell everyone, you know, when I first when you're there getting your second mammogram and your and your ultrasound, I wasn't nervous. I, I, I don't know if I was in denial, but I was just like, all right, if it is what it is, I got it. You know, yeah. it's going to be done. Right. I'll take care of it. So the radiologist that came in was an old guy. And uh, he says, well, miss, uh, you, have a, you have a mass. And I said, well, is that, is that always bad? You yeah. Know, like, and he goes, it's never good. Oh, okay. (laughs) So I walk out of there. That's that's some news you want to hear. Exactly. It wasn't like the best bedside matter, but yeah. Um, Yeah, and then that was it. I mean, I started the path. I mean, the path is. But lots of people don't know the path. What? How did you even know the path? Like what? What? Like what was the? I I always ask this to people. What do you do? What do you do? Because no one really knows, right? Like when you're put into these positions. What is the path? And then, but now that it's post the path, you're like, what do I do? So what did you do when you, when you first heard those words, it's yeah. never good. What ran through your mind? So I never told anyone in my family that I was going for a second because I really didn't want to worry everyone. And I think that's the first thing women think of is like, all right, I don't want to worry people around me unnecessarily. And my parents are elderly. My husband, you know, can be oblivious. <laughs> I think we, I think as women, we try and shelter that. Yes. We try yeah. and hold that in and, 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 and you know, not share. We're, we're nervous. We don't want to upset someone. We think we're in the wrong. I think a lot of people do that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a protection. Yeah. Um, so I... Came home and I told my husband, obviously, you know, and, and he he's an optimist. He's an eternal optimist. I call him oblivious because he's really that much of an optimist. You know? <laughs> and he's like, I'm sure it's fine. And that was like his mantra for the entire, my entire treatment. I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. So that was how he handled it. Um, so I, like I said, I'm very, very fortunate to be surrounded by a universe of physicians through my professional life. So I picked up the phone and I called the plastic surgeons uh, that I was close with that are on my leadership of my, my client's board. And uh, most of them, as you know, aren't just doing tummy tucks and and breast enhancements. They do, you know, cancer reconstruction and and breast surgery. Sure. So they immediately said, fax me everything. They looked at my, my scans, they looked at everything and they told me essentially, you know, you need to consult with a breast surgeon and here's someone we recommend. Um, I, 
someone, my family doctor recommended a different one in this area. So I ended up getting three recommendations from my network. Um, and then I went and got consults. And then I brought my best friend to one, I brought my husband to another, and I brought my parents to um, a third. So I had three different perspectives, um, you know, three different support groups, you know, supported differently, supportive differently. Yeah. Uh, and then from once you go to a breast surgeon, you know, then it triggers all of these scans. Um, I did it kind of backwards. I will tell, I want the audience to know, a lot of times your scans and everything are ordered before you see a breast surgeon. But because my network was so helpful, I was able to get in with breast surgeons like almost too soon. Right. Um, so then I had a share of all my, all my stuff after the fact. But yeah, then you go on a path and your path is scans, scans, nine scans, everything from brain scans to bone scans to full body scans. They want to make sure it's nowhere else. Sure. Um, and to backtrack, my cancer was in my right breast and also in my lymph nodes. And that was apparent from the um, mam you know, ma mammogram and then the subsequent ultrasound and right. then biopsy obviously sure so all that happens right in that first you know two-week period of time you're thrown right in I mean there's I suppose well, you no there's back. no time yeah, yeah. well yeah. I mean you want to the quicker the better I mean is is obviously the in yeah. the, the timeliness so what I love you you keep we keep referring to and I know a lot of a lot of cancer patients refer to to the path and then they have this support system and people that they couldn't really do without. And I love that you said, like, I took three different people to these three different things. And every time I talk to survivors, they're like, I have this network of these people that supported me. Who are those people? You know, because a lot of people feel like they can't talk about it. Like you were saying, you're, you're trying to hide it. You're not sure who to speak to, who to talk to. Who is that support system for you? So I needed multiple supports. Um, my family needed different supports. So believe it or not, before I even cared about myself, I blasted a text out to a network of my parent friends of sure. my 11 year old's age group. Sure. And I said, ladies, some stuff's going on. And I need it. I need your help. Yeah. He's 11. He's in every sport. He's doing a million things. I don't want this to impact him. Do I have you? You know, you're, are you with me? Yeah. And every single one of them was like, Oh my God. We got gotcha. you. We got gotcha. you. So they, you know, drove him when they needed to be driven. They took care of his, uh, you know, anytime we had to do those sign up genuses where they needed to volunteer water, they did it for us. Yeah. So there was everybody that was there to take care of my, my it 11 year old. Takes a village. It takes a village. And you have to ask, you know, you really do. I did it impulsively. I probably overshared in retrospect, like sure. when I think about it, but I was so scared of what it would do to him and his daily life. And my older one was 17 at the time. Uh, that's a different that's a different element. But yes, my, my initial was the supports for the 11-year-old. Um, and then, you know, the frank conversation with uh, my husband about, like, what this meant. And what I found, and I don't know other strong women marry these men, he was not used to seeing me need something. Or right. need his help. Well, well you with were anything. this. You were this yeah. powerhouse yeah. female rocking it in trend right. with all these other right powerhouse, like we were saying, yeah. males and yeah. the political realm and all these things. It's like, and then to see you 
vulnerable and be needy, he's never seen you in that role. So now you're in the time of need. It's like a switch. And now it's so different. So I totally understand that. That's a big, big jump. It's a big jump. Big jump. So he, you know, we didn't know what we didn't know yet, right? You know, so that was just at the beginning. You're still on your path, right? I'm still there. I'm not even like getting my first treatment Yeah, exactly. And I just said, you know, you're you're here? And he's like, of course, you know. But he didn't know what that meant. He didn't know that meant him going to shop at Wegmans and Costco and, you know, doing all the things that he does. Well, the things that, right, I understand. Right. Um, And then my best friend. So I have one friend. She's um, she's your rock. She's my rock. She's she was born. I don't know. I always do the math wrong. Like six weeks later, uh, earlier than me. We've been friends since childhood. She's my sister. She was my absolute rock. Um, and she, I could tell her the bad stuff. I could tell her the good stuff. I could, you know, I could share everything with her. And I know she wouldn't obsess over it and worry about it. And she knew that the next day was a new day. You can't share all that with other people. My parents were amazing, but I couldn't share everything going on with them. And and it's become a joke. I used to say, they'd say, how are you feeling today? I'd be like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I didn't realize I was saying I'm fine a lot. 99.9% of the time. I was fine. Yeah. I was fine. And my mom would say, stop saying that because we know you're not fine. But they they were in a different place. It's very hard to see your child of course. going through that. Of course. So, yes, different, different, uh, you know, they were great for escapes. I can go to their house and escape and, you know, sit on the water and not be in my space. Um, My Lauren was my talking pal. She's in New York, so I didn't see her all the time. And Ralph was my day to day, you know, rock. It's beautiful. You start on this path of your scans. You've got you're, you're going for your first treatment and a lot of women don't know what to expect what did you expect to then post what you really went through yeah so you see all the movies and you see people sitting in the chair i see one more lifetime movie about this right no i know you're like yeah or er or chicago hope you're like enough that was from our back in our day right okay so um i did end up um, you know, picking this wonderful oncologist, Dr. Grana. Um, she's with MD Anderson. And so my team there was just amazing. So I, they educate, I think when you ask enough questions and you're educated that the fear goes away and there's always uncertainty, right? You don't know how you're going to react when they put that, um, you know, the needle poison in your arm, yeah. in your, in your yeah. system. Um, I had a port installed, so you know I had um, I didn't have to get it in my veins every time. So I had the port. Uh, my husband was with me the first time. Nobody else. Uh, he brought his work laptop. Laptop. He tried to pretend like it was just a normal doctor's visit. Uh, we look back at that and kind of laugh. Um, I brought my laptop. So I can do some work. You're thinking you're doing work I'm while doing you're work. sitting there. I'm just gonna sit yeah. there and do some work. Okay. Um and you know, I did. Actually, I did. And it's just very... Well, everybody takes it differently, yeah. right? You're trying to make it, trying to make it normal. normal. Yeah. yeah. And the nurses are supportive. It really, you know, I think your experience is like educate yourself to the nth degree, know what you're going into, and then just deal with it when it, when it happens. There's this ACT is the first uh, treatment that you typically get. And that's the one where you lose your hair. 
Um, and they have, I always think it's called Red Death or Red Devil, but it's one of the ACT as a separate drug. Um, there's this one that goes up and it's this bright red. And they would say like, this is, you know, this is the, this is the hard one. Right. And so you're like, oh, that's the one that's making me lose my hair or that's the one that's going to make me feel sick. Uh, and so that's scary. That first, you know, that sure. first infusion, uh, when you see that go, oh, this is real. Like, this is real. This is happening. And this is going to be my life for the next four months. And in your story, you said that that didn't work. And you had to move on to another bigger decision. Yes. So at the end of my four months, I got very sick. Um, and I handled chemo really well. So, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have the typical experience where you feel like you're throwing up and nauseous. I really felt fine. But I got hit somewhere early October with that T of the ACT. Um, and six, maybe six weeks into that, I got very sick. Um, they determined I had an aller allergic reaction to it. So I was in the hospital. I was getting cultures. I was in the hospital for days at a time. I had something called pneumonitis. I was neutropenic, which is when your blood blood, white blood cell count goes down to like one or two. Um, looked like hell, you know. Sure. Bald, pale. Yeah. Sick. Um, and, you know, those times you have to go into the emergency room, you're cancer patient in the emergency room, it's not really the best place to be when your white cell, white blood cell count is low. Yeah. So the various times, like I had my son take me one time, I had my husband take me another time, and then, you know, kind of admitted. Um, so I had to jump right back into surgery, right? So now, okay, this, they didn't know it hadn't shrunk it the way it was supposed to at that point. But yes, then I have to make a decision. Am I doing a lumpectomy? Am I doing a mastectomy? Um, I had to get all my lymph nodes, um, removed. Uh, but I really, I, I, it's such a personal, personal choice. I I've told everyone, even the first consults I was with my girlfriend and I said, you know, take them off, right? Take them off. Just right. get rid of them. Every, everyone thinks they're going to say that. I did until it was time to make the decision. I educated myself enough. And for me, the, the, the reduction in recurrence of the cancer was not so much different for me if I had a lumpectomy versus a mastectomy. If it's going to like significantly reduce your recurrence, take them off. Done. Mine wasn't that cut, cut and dry because I had significant lymph node activity. So my little cells were floating all over my body already. Right. right? So I chose lumpectomy and the full axillary dissection of my lymph nodes, which ended up being pretty significant. So one thing that I think that I, I love that you're an advocate for is that, you know, you've always stressed that everybody's journey is different. And, and, and this is every time I talk to a survivor, everybody's story is different. And I think that is, you know, shown here where you're saying, everybody's got to do what they got to do. It's, and it's a difficult decision no matter where you're at. Um, tell us what happened post, because I think a lot of people, it's almost like you have this adrenaline rush of all the decisions, right? Right before like these bigger decisions. I mean, that's a huge decision, especially as females and how we're tied to our bodies and everything like that, that, what was the post like for something like that? The post of the surgery or the yeah. post of the treatment? Post of the surgery. Post of the surgery, I think because it was lumpectomy, 
um, I didn't have any kind of drastic emotional experience, right? I think when you have your breast removed, um, it's a much different journey and it's sure. a different experience. Um, I was not, um, my breast was not unchanged, right? I had dents. Uh, sure. I had basically a hole, right. an indent, uh, where the lump was removed and there was subsequent reconstruction that needed to get that fixed. So I certainly was not, um, I did not look the same. And right. I think even with the um, axillary, you know, like the lymph nodes and the surgery there, you know, I couldn't lift my arm for a while. I had to go through therapy. Um, so there's a lot that, you know, goes and, into and, different surgeries. And post-treatment, what was your thought? Post-treatment, um, post-treatment initially was okay. Um, I'll tell you. It's a very odd observation I did share with my oncologist. I kind of had a little depression after, not before, not during. During, I was, you know, plugging through. I did it all, checked the boxes, you know, kept a, you know, chin up, positive attitude, you know, mentored other people going through breast cancer. My oncologist asked me to talk to some people about, you know, positive attitude. And when it was all over and I wasn't having chemo anymore because I had to have chemo a second time, I crashed. It was almost like I was on this adrenaline rush. I was balancing work. I was still working. I never missed a day. I did cancer. I did cancer. I did cancer. I did, you know, uh, lacrosse recruiting for my son. I, you know, managed my 11, 12-year-old. I was running around. I never really slowed down. And then when that big chunk got taken off my calendar, I had a lot of free time. And it, it, it like, hit me in a weird, depressing way. And then I turned that into filling that free time, not with more clients, but with volunteerism. And I got involved with, you know, things in my community. I got involved with um, um, uh, rescue for uh, dogs um, and, and then COVID. Yeah. And I was doing all that volunteerism really during COVID. So basically when this depression hit, you were trying to fill all the, the void. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't depressed. I wasn't sick. Right. I, right. I, was, I, was, I, I realized that like I had just been on such a, a high and so productive like I was productive during cancer and I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that I know God bless you so the steroids help yeah right on steroids so you're (laughs) up at three in the morning answering emails I guess you'd be the best person to ask about work-life balance in a weird way (laughs) in a weird way way. I feel strange just making that connection but I feel like but you are yeah. like a go go go, and I and I know that your volunteerism means a, a lot to you. Do you want to share what what are some of your places that you support? Uh, so I I volunteered. I haven't done it in recent in recent time, but I volunteered with Match Dog Rescue, which is a, a dog rescue in our in our area. I think the founder was originally from Morristown. I did that for several years, um, not only fostering. Uh, but also getting involved with the matching up of sure. adoptees, so that yeah. was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I got, a, a, of course, a rescue through that pro- per, you know through that process. I got two, um, and probably the most rewarding of that experience was fostering a, a mom, a mom puppy who um, who had puppies in my home, and we kept her. That was a foster fail. <laughs> uh, I couldn't. I could. I didn't keep any of the you puppies. You just couldn't let go. I couldn't let go of her. She was. She was really quite. You know, when you take care of a mom. Who's yeah. birthing a baby and nursing, and you know, that was that was a great experience. And then, um, you know, I decided to get involved with the community, and I um, ran for election for um, the board of education in Morristown, and I'm on on the 
it's been two years. And uh, that's been a great experience. I mean, that's kind of brought me back to, you know, giving back to the community that supported me. I think that even getting elected, I think a lot of the people that I got to know, I get to, they got to know me better through my cancer because I was probably a little more private pre-cancer and got sure. a little bit more sherry yeah. <laughs> after cancer. And yeah. so relationships that I had got more nurtured because I was willing to kind of show my flaws and show my weaknesses and, you know, yeah, share open my story. Up. Yeah, be, yeah. Pub- be public. Be and public. I think that's a beautiful thing that you could share that. You've also shared that, you know, you have had other ailments and how you feel that they are connected to these treatments that you had for cancer. Do you, can you share us that story of now, now you're in, you know, how many years are you now cancer free? Cancer free as of 2019. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, Yes. So I had hormone receptor positive cancer, which means estrogen drives my cancer. So I have to be on something called aromatase inhibitors. Some people are on tamoxifen. Uh, I'm on these aromatase inhibitors. So there's three options with that medicine, and they just basically suppress and suck out all the estrogen in your body, whatever's left, postmenopausal. So in the process of that, things happen, right? I mean, there's there's reactions to that. And since cancer, I have had probably five or six surgeries to fix, like, bone, ligament, joint kind of things. I've had knee replacement. I've had bilateral carpal tunnel uh, surgery. I've had trigger finger surgery. Um, I lose track, right? I mean, I, I had the reconstruction, but that's unrelated to that. I have had scans since my scans, my original scans, sure. where my original scans, all I had was breast cancer. Now all my scans, I have arthritis from my shoulders to my feet. Um, I've had incidental findings. Um, oh, originally when I first got scanned, I had a mass in my brain when I first got diagnosed with breast cancer. It was just a meningioma that many of us have, but it was an incidental finding. And the impact of an incidental finding is you're tracking it for life. Right. Right. So I have to get my brain scan every year just to make sure that meningioma is doing the right thing. Um, I have found a mass on my lung. Um, that's very serious because that's where breast cancer goes sure. to bone, brain, and, yeah. and lung. Um, so that was found because I, you know, wasn't feeling myself. Um, I had a, you know, cough for a while, you know, all these things I didn't have. They were trying to diagnose me with asthma. I never had asthma before. Did a scan, find a mass on my lung, tracking that. So it's been a journey of a different path. Where it's like a secondary journey that you're reliving yeah. all this all over again. Yeah, yeah. And I think I went into the depression at some point later because cancer is a box you check off and you finish it and it's done, right? Yeah. And you think, all right, then I'm done. And then I'm on this survivorship and you just hope it doesn't come back. Crossing your fingers. Cross your fingers. Do everything you do. Eat well, try and, you know, kind of, yeah. you know, treat yourself well. Um, but all this other stuff, there's no end. So, you know, having a knee replacement, I have to have my left done. You know, I have to have my other one done soon. Like, there's no end to this. Like, this has kept me from, you know, walking across lacrosse fields to see my son play. This this has cost me quality of life where the treatment of cancer did not, right? 
So how are you getting up every day? What what's get making what's getting you through the day? Because I think if it was any other female woman that I know, I mean, you have it's like such a weight on your shoulders. How do you how do you get up every day? What keeps you going every day with this? Oh gosh. Well, I, I love my job. I mean, I love what I do and I have I have a great support system. Um, I think, you know, working, keeping busy, I have the benefit of working for myself through treatment and post-treatment that I can set my own schedule and I can have a funky morning if I want. I really can. I don't, I'm not accountable to anyone at nine in the morning. And to let women know that it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Have a bad day. I mean, I, you know, I don't put my bad days on other people, you know, like, but, but if I'm just having a bad day where I'm just like, my joints are killing me and I'm just not feeling great. I just start my day at 11. You know, I start, I have that, I have, I know I have that privilege to do that having my own business, but I just, you know, you have to say that you have to let people know. I just don't feel a hundred percent, you know, sometimes I kind of just absorb into my bubble and I'll binge watch some shows and it just won't be as social, right? Cause I know my, my, my body hurts, you know, but that's okay. Um, uh, my son, I mean, I, I you know, my, my 11 year old is now 16. Uh, you know, he doesn't want to see me you know, laying in bed and, you know, nursing my joints, you know, so that motivates me to get up and be active with him. You know, that, I think family, you know, just, I have my friend, same friend, Lauren, who calls me every morning at eight o'clock saying, good day. I'm like, good day. Good day. I'm fine. I'm fine. (laughs) What, what, as we wrap up, what, what can you share out of, out of all this First off, it's a huge learning experience, right? Being like this, you know, getting the diagnosis to the treatment to the in and outs of the the medical professionals. I mean, of course, you had a little bit of a connection there. Many people don't. They're literally just flying blind. You have the support system. You you're you're tied with the community. You're giving back. I mean, I don't even know. I could go on for a twenty more minutes of everything that you do. What can you share with other women that are going through this journey? What would you tell them? Keep positive. I mean, it's very hard not to stay positive. But I think a lot of the success I did have during my treatment was because I had a positive outlook. And I don't know how to... I I worked with other breast cancer patients at the time um, who were not. And they struggled. They really struggled. Every time they went for infusion... Was a, was a traumatic experience. And your body just absorbs that energy. You have, to, you have to find something positive going on. You have to stay positive and you have to talk to people and you have to pick the right team. And you don't know what the right team is. Go with your gut. You know, I had three choices. I think they all would have been fine. <laughs> yeah. Right? But I had a connection with one and, I, and, and the reason I picked her was she didn't rush me out of the room. She spent significant amount of time with me. She answered all my questions. She gave me her phone number. She gave me her email. I knew that was a person that I was going to have for life. And right now I could text her right now and telling her I'm doing this. And she'd be like, oh my God, when is it going to air? I'll listen. You know, so I found that support in my treatment world. And I think that's what people need to do. Stay positive and surround yourself with the right people. Well, I think you have been such a beautiful influence in the community to my journey. I thank you for being here today. I want to, you know, remind women what you said about that every woman's cancer journey is unique. Everybody has their own story. 
Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for being here. While we were talking, I write down all these positive words and I turn them into kind of hashtags and I'm going to read them and then I want you to tell me what your personal hashtag is, okay? So these are just some keywords that I've been writing down through through our discussion today. Advocate, lobbyist, nonprofit, cultural, mentors, networking, educated, fear goes away, normal, attitude, success, energy, be brave, be bold, help, support, new day, team, depression, keep positive. What's your hashtag, Claudine? Hashtag, I'm fine. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people contact you if they have questions or they want to find out about an amazing lobbyist? Where are we sending them? Um, so you can uh, reach me at uh, Claudine at NJGAC.com. My company is New Jersey Government Affairs Council. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We will be back next month with another powerful woman on The Baroness. Take care. Thanks. You've been listening to the RCBC Baroness podcast, which highlights women in leadership while encouraging listeners to build their skills, connect with the community, and visualize the opportunities available to women in various professions. For more information about this podcast or other podcasts available on the RCBC Podcast Network, visit rcbc.edu slash podcast. And be sure to subscribe to the RCBC Baroness podcast available on all streaming platforms.